You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. Um, I am beyond thrilled to have Dr. Morgan Katz with us today from Johns Hopkins. Um, She is an infectious disease specialist. And so, you know, I said on my Instagram question box yesterday, um, ask any questions you want because this is like the Super Bowl um, for these physicians. So, um, Dr. Katz, I am so thrilled to have you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me here, Claire. I am so thankful that you were able to take the time um, to be here. So get, tell people just a little brief, like intro and background about you and your training and what you kind of um, are doing now. Sure. So I uh, went to medical school at University of Maryland and then did my residency down at Tulane um, in New Orleans and then came back here in for fellowship in infectious disease at Hopkins in, God, I guess, 2014, um, and then also got a master in health science at Bloomberg School of Public Health during my fellowship. Um, so I've been here. I'm actually born and raised in Baltimore, um, met my husband in medical school. He's a cardiologist, and we have two kids, um, four and two girls, four and almost two, and you know, we've just been in it for the past year or so. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's been a crazy time for sure. It, it has been. And I am sure, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're probably really tired of talking about it. Um, and so <laughs> I'm sorry to make you talk about it for another hour, but, um, it's just so important, I think, for people to hear from actual experts, not just in the medical field, but public health, you know, and experts in research and interpreting things. There's so much information right now, so much misinformation as well. And, um, so yeah, I, I, I let people ask questions last night and we kind of talked about, we're going to, so what I'm going to try to do guys is kind of break it into sections and we'll see if we can kind of stick to this because there's so much that people want to know. So I thought we would maybe start with just some basics. And if you could just, I mean, it sounds silly at this point because we've been talking about it for almost a year, but I think it's helpful to just have a basic explanation of COVID and what, how did we get here and why is this such a problem? Yeah. So, you know, we, I will say we have learned so much throughout the course of this pandemic. It's been pretty astonishing uh, what right. has happened um, even in the past several months. So right. in terms of, you know, having a better understanding of transmission and what puts you at risk and um, and why this has been such a challenge to control. So just to right. give like a very brief background on SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes uh, coronavirus disease 19. Um, So this is a virus that we think originated in bats, similar to SARS-CoV-1, as well as MERS, which we saw in um, the Middle East. Um, And the virus itself, the, the real difference that we've seen here is that those viruses actually cause very severe um 
symptoms pretty early on in the disease. And because of that, many people that were infected with uh, SARS-1 and MERS, you know, went in the hospital right away. And so they didn't spread quite as much as, you know, what we're seeing with this virus, with SARS-CoV-2. And I do think one of the biggest challenges with controlling this virus is the, the rate of asymptomatic transmission. Um, so we know now about 40, 45% of people are completely asymptomatic um, with this virus. So it's been really challenging to identify cases, um, especially with limited testing um, throughout the course of this pandemic. And I do think that's um, a big reason why uh, we've seen such a challenge in transmission here. So, so for people, so SARS and MERS are these two other respiratory diseases that we saw, what, like 10, 10 and 15 years-ish ago? Um, and so kind of what you're saying, right, is like these people were getting really sick really quickly, and so they weren't able to bebop around the community and spread their horrible virus because they got sicker faster. And what we're seeing now is, like you said, some people aren't sick at all. And then some people it's taking a week or 10 days, which is the point of the quarantine periods. And so during that time, they're living their normal lives in theory and, and essentially spreading it in a different way, right? Exactly. So who can get it and who can spread it is kind of another question. And I think a lot of misinformation I, I've even heard, you know, at my child's school, well, we know children aren't getting it. And I was like, oh, God, that's not accurate. But like, where is that idea even coming from, um, you know, of who, who can get it and who can spread it? Yeah, so I think initially we didn't think children were getting it simply because we weren't testing kids because the way that we were testing early on right. in the course of this pandemic was, you know, only testing people with fever, cough, severe symptoms. And right. um, because of that, the kids just weren't getting tested because they were having mild symptoms and we attributed it to the many other viruses that kids get. And kids still aren't getting tested very much either because it's such a nightmare. I mean, we're still not testing children at a very high rate, right? I mean, in comparison to adult testing. Yeah, I think we're seeing it more often now that kids are in school. And so they're required or some kids are in school. So they're required right. to get tested right. more often. But yeah, I totally agree. I think we just haven't. I think a lot of the child illnesses just were not identified. But I think they certainly can get it. It does seem like they are they transmit it a little bit less. And there's a few theories um, behind that. So one is that they're actually just closer to the ground. So when they <laughs> sneeze, they're not spreading as much virus. Um, okay. All right. And um, one is just that they don't have quite as much viral. They're not carrying as much um, in their nasal cavity. Um, and so, or they're just recovering more quickly uh, than the adults. Uh, that makes but yeah, sense. They're lower to the ground. I mean, I, have, I hadn't heard that yet. And that's like hilarious, but also makes sense is that we're not face to face with our tiny humans as much as you're like up on the same, I guess, literal level as adult to adult. Exactly. And, and I think that that's sort of a reason behind the theory that the younger kids, like the preschool kids seem to be a little bit safer than adolescents. Wow. 
And so that's interesting. I was kind of the next question is why do, why do some people spread it more than others? That kind of answers the children's part of it. But why are some adults, you know, so infectious and, you know, then you hear about, you know, these super spreader events and how does that happen versus another person moving around their total, you know, their normal life and having the virus the whole time and maybe spreading it to no one? Yeah, so there, there's also a few different theories to this, and there's a lot that goes into this as well. So first, I mean, you asymptomatic people that are traveling around and aren't isolating obviously are going to be at higher risk for spreading just because of their contact with others. But then right. we have seen that it, the more um, people that get severe disease seem to carry the virus a bit longer and have the ability to transmit it um, for as long as 20 days compared to people with more mild to moderate illness. Um, they typically are not able to transmit the illness after 10 days of symptoms. Um, so it's a little, it, it kind of depends on the situation. I don't think it's we 100% tricky. understand these super spreaders. Right. It, and I think that's important to note too, you know, is I know that people are really frustrated with that answer of like, we don't understand all of this completely, but I, I don't know how you deal with, you know, trying to explain to people, one, using data and science, what you have at your disposal, but then two, also balancing that response of like, hey, but we also don't 100% know all of the answers to this. It's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I've that has been one thing for me throughout the course of the pandemic is really being honest about how much we, we don't know and we are learning, right. like we are working tirelessly to learn this because I know, I mean, I think you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were telling people not to wear masks because we needed to save them for healthcare workers. And now, obviously, we have an understanding of how important masks really are. So right. understanding that, like, we need to, we are learning so much all the time and we need to rely on the science and uh, allow that to sort of change um, our practices based on what we're learning. Um, so, Do yeah, you want to talk about masks? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, we can talk about masks. I mean, I just, think <laughs> just explaining. I think the, learning what we've learned over the past nine months. You know, what? How has that changed, and why did that recommendation change? Yeah, I mean, I think first when we first went into this, right there was such a dramatic shortage in PPE because obviously thing, a lot of the, the place where we were getting all our masks was from, or a lot of our masks were from China, right? And so we um, were so concerned. So I was in the incident command side at Hopkins really talking about these issues. And I think we understood that masks were important then, but there was a concern that um, there weren't going to be enough available for uh, the healthcare workers. So there was definitely a push to sort of hold off on this, but now there has just been, you know, sort of a flood of data and it's hard. I mean, you can't do a randomized control trial um, for masks right. at this point because right. it would be unethical. Like we now just have a, you know, based on the data we've seen and sort of the anecdotal evidence coming from the states and the places that have enforced mask mandates um, and are following this, you can really see the benefit. Um, and I think, right. you know, some of the um, 
countries in Asia that actually suffered through uh, SARS-CoV-1 were quicker to adopt masks earlier on in the course of this pandemic. And and I do think that contributed to that and widespread testing um, that contributed to why they did a lot better than we did in the course of the pandemic. Well, and you don't, you also don't have the benefit of, so even if you're not doing, so there's different levels of research because a lot of people listening are not, well, they're not medical. And so randomized controlled trial is what Dr. Katz is talking about. And that's often considered the gold standard of research because you've got one group that's getting the intervention and another group that's not getting the intervention. You compare those two, but even another type of research is something called retrospective data, right? Where you're looking backwards and saying, okay, even though we didn't randomize these people, this is what worked in this group and this is what worked. And so you don't have that in the benefit, you don't have that benefit of time and being able to look backwards, you know, in month three of the pandemic, whereas now we're in month, what, nine, 10. So obviously we have so much more data now than we did six months ago that we can say, retrospective, you know, we're looking backwards and and seeing what did and didn't work in different countries, different populations, all of that. Is that, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. And, you know, I do, I I wish that we had sort of used more of what they were doing and what worked in other countries to guide us. Um, because I, I think, um, that would have also helped, uh, our response. So let's talk about a little bit about um, not just death, because I think I think people see, you know, the mortality of this and it's lower than it's lower now than we thought initially it was going to be, which is great. But, you know, this gets compared to flu a lot. And I think what's really important is to talk about some of these other effects that people are having. And I don't mean just older people. I mean, younger people, like I would, I'm sure there are people younger than me that are listening, but I consider myself a younger person. I mean, I'm 36, but what are some of these other effects that are not death that people are seeing that are devastating consequences for long-term? Cause I think it's important for people to know there are things other than death that this virus is causing. Yeah. And I will say, you know, here, there's still a lot that we don't understand, but we certainly are seeing um, a good proportion of individuals, um, even younger individuals, that are dealing with uh, long-term effects from this infection. So, you know, some of the things that we've seen uh, in the hospital clinically, anecdotally, and in and, and research are people that are dealing with, um, you know, prolonged fatigue. Um, We see a lot in the hospital people, um, you know, with residual fevers several weeks out, Um, certainly uh, continued respiratory symptoms, um, headaches, uh, sort of, I've heard a lot about, um, you know, mental changes, brain fog is what they say, but just like feeling kind of out of it all the time. And then, you know, I have talked to several people that have been dealing with really long-term effects of the loss of uh, sense of taste and smell. I mean, it, it, it sounds, uh, minimal, but like you can't enjoy your food anymore. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's really depressing. I mean, I'll say I worked in head and neck for eight or nine years and 
Um, you know, so a lot of our patients would have that effect or come in with that. And, and yeah, initially it sounds like maybe that's not a big deal, but to not be able to smell or taste your food is people get really, really depressed with that, like really depressed. I can imagine. I mean, that's one of our joys in life (laughs) and take that especially in the pandemic. We can't go anywhere. I can't, if we can't enjoy what we're eating, we're in trouble. (laughs) And fatigue, you said this prolonged fatigue. I mean, for, you know, if you're a 36-year-old, you know, totally normal, healthy person, and then you've got this overwhelming fatigue for six months, where I mean, and maybe longer, because we don't even know, because it hasn't been going on that long. So, gosh, I mean, the the fatigue and the brain fog, I hear a ton of people talking about Um, I got actually a lot of anonymous messages one time. I can't remember what I posted some question I had. I I mean, in my small, small sampling, I had probably 20 people write me and say that they, you know, had this brain fog that they had had COVID several months ago. They're having trouble at work. They're having trouble in their, you know, relationships and their lives because they can't get their normal cognitive function back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, we've heard the same thing. And I, I don't think we... Uh, completely understand the physiology behind that yet. Um, And definitely uh, there will be years of research in the future to see, you know, how this virus has has, um, affected people for many years to come. And what about, I've heard a lot about clotting and seizure disorders. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, so definitely the the clotting. I mean, and, and I think that that is the main concern um, in the hospitalized population that we've seen. Um, those are the patients that are really developing the more significant complications from COVID. Um, and we've seen that a lot in the nursing home population as well. Um, so, you know, patients are getting pulmonary embolisms. They're having... Um, Uh, cardiac issues. So those are usually the more severe complications that you're ending up getting hospitalized for. Yeah. The cardiomyopathy, right. It seems like that's a, a bigger problem than we realized initially. So cardiomyopathy can be viral or bacterial, but it's basically just an inflammation of the, the muscles of the heart. Um, and that, I I guess maybe that's contributing to the fatigue too, or I, I don't know. I haven't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely possible. I haven't seen, my husband has been dealing with a lot of, um, the COVID induced or potentially COVID induced cardiomyopathy cases, um, at Mm -hmm. his hospital, but, um, I'm not sure how much they've tied in the fatigue, but certainly it can cause, um, fatigue, uh, during the course of the disease for sure. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. 
So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, it solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out and they will know that I sent you and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. So a lot of people want to know basically all the things about the vaccine. Um, so do you... Do you want to talk about the vaccine? I'm sure. I, I just cannot imagine, too. I'm like, I'm so sorry to make you talk about all this because I bet you are so tired of talking about it. But, um, but do you do you have any concern about the speed? Yeah, it's so funny because my husband and I, like, always try to sit at the end of the night and be like, all right, for 30 seconds, we are going, or three minutes, we're going to try to, like, have a conversation that does not mention COVID. And we, like, have failed every single night. It's actually impossible. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Um, And so, yeah, this is, this is our lives now. And so um, I totally get it. Um, So in terms of questions of the speed, I mean, I, I think what Uh, And I think you've actually highlighted this. I I totally agree with um, all of your discussion on the vaccine and the speed as well. Like, I think you highlighted it really well. Like, first of all, um, the... There's some differences in the way that we approach this vaccine than we have approached vaccines in the past, which is why um, we have seen such speed. So, first of all, we had an understanding, right, of coronaviruses before um, this came about. So, we had some baseline knowledge of how to make vaccines, we had knowledge of the virus itself. So, that sped things along. Second, we had an insane amount of money and uh, (laughs) the entire world was focused on this, which has almost never happened before, you know? So, I mean, so on top of that, we sort of uh, put all of our funds into developing that vaccine, which really does help to um, move uh, science along. Um, Yes. So, and then uh, third is that um, we actually had the case count. So a lot of the issues with, um, you know, developing vaccines are that you need infections, right? So in those phase three trials, um, when they um, uh, enroll 30,000 volunteers, what the endpoint is and what they're waiting for is for an, a um specific number of people to actually get infected so that you can see a difference in the population of the placebo group who doesn't get the vaccine and the group that got the vaccine. So what you need is active transmission of the virus. And so when we started to get this sort of second wave in the fall, the vaccine trials like very quickly filled and were able to show the, um, the difference between the vaccine groups and the placebo groups because there were so many people getting infected. Um, And you don't see that in other viruses when they're, they're less widespread. So that's why this has happened so quickly. Um, I I was going to say, I think that people are under the impression that, so, so this MRNA vaccine, which is the only one that's been approved for emergency use for right now, but 
that that is like a brand new technology. I certainly thought that that, because that was kind of how it was presented, but I didn't realize until I recently heard Paul Offit, who is like the the vaccine Sherpa guru, like we all love him. He's at um, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, but he was explaining that, no, that's actually not new. We've been using that technology. This is the first time we're using it in this capacity, but I guess it's been, they've been studying it and using it for like 15 years, 20 years. Yeah. We had an understanding of the technology for mRNA vaccines prior to this. And and I think what's important to sort of clarify is that, um, the way that it works is that it's really just allow, you know, it, it's allowing the cells in your body to um, put together this spike protein that is the protein that we have. Most of the vaccines are directed against um, for this virus. And then um, that allows your body to create antibodies specifically to that spike protein. It is mm-hmm. not injecting the virus in your cell. It is not the whole virus. It is only this small spike protein. And then it is completely destroyed after, um, after it's, it's, uh, included into the cell. So it's certain this, this vaccine does not give you COVID. It is not entering in your genes forever. Um, that is just simply not the case. Right. No, people are hearing it's going to alter their DNA. There was some, oh gosh, unfortunate um, physician. I think she was out of Georgia that made this like viral video about how it's going to alter our DNA. And that's just simply not true. I mean, that is just simply not how this works. And I, I got a question that was like, well, what do you do with, you know, well, how are we supposed to know when there's physicians out here saying this? I'm like, I don't, you know, every family has like its black sheep that they're like, this person is embarrassing and we like <laughs> wish we could kick them out of the family, but you can't. Um, and I was like, you know, so for as many um, physicians and healthcare professionals as there are in America, there are going to be a few that go astray and, you know, spew random bizarre misinformation and unfortunately this that is is happening so it is it's making it really confusing for people yeah and i mean we've seen that sort of through the course of this right and i would say the most important thing there is to really look at the credentials of these physicians see what they do see what their specialty is like a lot of times uh yeah they don't specialize in infectious disease or anything related to this and sort of make these claims. Um, and, uh, that I agree. It's, it's frustrating. Um, and it's frustrating that it, it, it really catches on. Um, but Mm -hmm. I think that is why, you know, podcasts like yours are so important to try and sort of address those, um, that misinformation that's coming out. I mean, I have gotten calls about these, the tests, you know, being made to disrupt your blood brain barrier, the swabs to do COVID oh, wow. and um, inject the virus into your brain and oh, wow. masks. Uh, yeah. So we've, we've seen everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, masks lowering your oxygen level and you're yeah, retaining exactly. CO2 and which is like, well, that doesn't <laughs> make sense. Morning. Otherwise everyone that works in the surgical especially would be dead or brain damaged. And that's just, so that's not possible, but oh man. And, and fertility, fertility has been a big one too. I'm not sure where that came from. I, I think people are worried about fertility probably because in the trial, you know, which they would do, I think it's important to note too, 
with any trial, unless the trial is specifically related to something that has to do with fertility or fetuses, I, I would think they would be asking you not to get pregnant during that trial because it's a trial. I mean, that's you have to control the setting. We just don't know. And so that, I think, has been latched onto and, and kind of taken a different direction about this thing affects fertility, when in reality what's affecting fertility that we, we actually know is COVID. We know that COVID lowers your sperm count, right? So, and I don't even know on the female side, I'd have to go defer to, you know, my fertility specialist, but I mean, so to, to say that the vaccine, anyway, there's people that got pregnant during the trial, um, even though they were asked not to, and the people that got the vaccine actually had better outcomes than the people in the, that were in the placebo group in terms of fertility and pregnancy. So I don't know if you've heard anything about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is a common, you know, this is a, a common problem in any scientific trial because we are so hesitant to really, um, perform research on pregnant or women or women that are um, actively trying to get pregnant um, because there is so much we don't know and there's so much uh, litigation behind that. But there are, I know there are vaccine trials that are being dedicated to um, pregnant women. I know they're enrolling now. So I think um, that will be really helpful to have like the hard data to start sharing with women because in general, um, I think this is likely going to be safe, but, uh, I think we'll be getting the data in the next several months that will make people feel a lot better about it. Yeah, hopefully. And I, you know, you certainly understand people's hesitancy, um, you know, but it just, you can be hesitant and have your own opinion and have your discussion with your provider. Um, but, the issue I have is then when you start taking that opinion out to, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the world without discussing it with the people who, who actually know what's going on. And and that's how misinformation gets spread. It's, it's kind of crazy, but, um, what do you see? What do you envision? You know, everybody just wants to know when or when can we get back to normal? You know, when, when is this thing, when are we, when are we going to go back to normal? What are your thoughts and thoughts, hopes, and dreams? Man, I've been like burned on this question in the past because I was getting asked this question um, very early in the pandemic. And I think I had um, more faith in like (laughs) our ability to Mm. um, sort of follow normal, you know, public health recommendations. So um, Mm. shame on you for having faith in in the American humanity. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So, um, man, I think you know, I I think that summer is going to look different than now is what I can safely say. Okay. Um, I I'm you know, I I think we are definitely going to start seeing an improvement. Do I think that masks are here to stay for a while? Probably. Um, I think our kids will probably be wearing masks in school next fall. Um, Mm, but you know what they actually have done, you know, I have my four year old is in preschool now. Um, and you know, she has not once even like 
complained about the mask and they wear that thing all day long. And so you'd be surprised. They can, they actually can handle a lot more than we give them credit for. Um, But yeah, I think we're going to be seeing uh, masks around for a while, but I think we're going to start feeling more comfortable in terms of traveling again and those types of things, hopefully by summer, um, at least we'll get a little bit more control of community prevalence. And and that is really what has like guided my practices throughout in terms of, you know, uh, willingness to, uh, you know, step out a little bit more, um, is is what's really going on in the community around me. Obviously, like there are sort of core principles that we all just, if we all just sort of stuck to that, I think we'd just be in a much better place right now than, uh, we are. So I think it's important too. you know, like you said, masks are going to be around for a little, a little while longer. And I'm sure some people will be disappointed to hear that because, I think we, what we're doing is kind of putting our faith in each individual measure, right? And we're like, okay, if masks are the answer and, and masks aren't controlling it, then let's just not wear masks, right? Or like, if the vaccine is the answer, then the vaccine is here, like, let's give up on masks. And then why do we have to social distance? When really you think about, hopefully you guys have seen like the Swiss cheese theory by now. If not, I'll try to find like a little graphic or meme because I'm like obsessed with it. But so if you think about... <laughs> the Swiss cheese theory. So it's basically saying like, okay, each of these, none of these mitigation um, protocols or what are strategies, um, none of them are perfect, right? So masks are not perfect. Socially distancing is not perfect. The vaccine will not be perfect. But if we're using all of the tools in our toolbox, and so the, the Swiss cheese theory is like, if they all have, all the pieces have holes, but if you um, oh, sorry, my Siri thought I was talking to her, but I was not. Um, so if you're using all the strategies, you're going to have better coverage and maybe be able to, to, to go more back to normal. And it's, that's what I really just don't understand. I, I guess there still is just a population of people who just truly thinks that this is like not a big deal and not a problem. But if we want to get back to, you know, this new normal, we have to be employing all of the tools that we have. It's not going to be just one versus the other. Yeah, you're so, I really think you like hit the nail on the head with that. And, and, you know, this is something um, I'm working a lot with nursing homes and something that like, yeah, we have to think about all the time and especially moving forward through this vaccine period. So what is going to happen probably is that you're going to start seeing more and more people get vaccinated, but like we need to remember until we know, until we're sure um, that you can't transmit after you've been vaccinated and remember that we need, you have to wait um, an entire month for the next um, vaccination. So there's that period there you're developing immunity um, that being said, it does seem like the first dose um, does provide some pretty good immunity, about 60%. Um, but there is still going to be a, a period that you need to get two doses. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's going to be such a combined effort. And this this would be manageable if 
you know, we did combine those efforts. So if we had more broad testing, I do think that testing um, is still really important and, and something we can use as a tool. Um, there, Unfortunately, there wasn't, you know, enough invested in testing um, yeah. early on in the pandemic. And I think that that's why we're so behind in that course. So using the testing, the masking, and then just trying to be reasonable in terms of like, the indoor activities and being in crowded places. Like it's not actually that hard. Um, if yeah. we all were like middle of the road reasonable, then it, we would be in a better place now. And like, right. I'll right. tell you, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I haven't, I, I don't lock my doors and like disinfect my groceries and, and I, we're, you know, pretty middle of the road, but like, uh, I think because we knew this was going to be a long course. Like, so for example, right. we've, we've seen our parents through the course of this pandemic and I sat down and, you know, had a, a discussion with them and they said sort of, we can't, I said, you know, this is probably, this is going to be, you know, a year and a half, two years. And they said, you know, we don't, we can't not see our grandchildren for that long. Right. And so right. we sort of decided that we were all going to be as safe as possible, but still try and see each other. And, and I think, um, that is important to realize that people, um, need each other <laughs> and, um, yeah. Yeah. that we're not asking people to, you know, be hermits forever. Right. Um, but at least now we sort of have a light at the end of the tunnel, which we haven't had for um, much of this. I am like, give me all, like all of the vaccines. I would take a million. Oh, I mean, too. just uh, like can't get here soon enough. My husband's getting his this week and I'm like very jealous because he uh, has more, you know, involvement and exposure in the hospital and I, I don't anymore. So I'm like, oh, when am I going to be able to get mine and my parents and all that? But um, do you do you think, too, I, I, I don't know if we you can answer this, but do you think there will be a COVID season, almost like there's a kind of a flu season where flu is around, obviously, year round, but there's more of a, a, a heavy season? What, do you have any thoughts on that? That's a great question. So I'd say the, you know, PC answer is that we don't 100% know, um, but right. we haven't seen the virus mutate so much, right? So the spike protein we still see is sort of, and that's what most of the vaccines are uh, directed against, um, seems to be holding steady. So we're hoping that... Um, if we don't see much mutation in that spike protein, then hopefully the vaccine will, will last longer than being seasonable. But we just, at this point, don't really know. don't know, unfortunately. Don't know. Yeah, and I had a lot of questions that said, you know, if you get the vaccine and, you know, are you going to have to get again, like the flu shot? And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't know how anybody can answer that right now because it's just so new. There's just not enough time to really know. Yeah. I mean, I, and, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot of this in terms of immunity as well. Um, and there's still questions on whether actually having the virus will, will cause more long lasting immunity or having the vaccine itself will cause more long lasting immunity. And, um, mm -hmm. there, there's actually, we see this differently depending on the, the virus itself. Some viruses, um, it's 
more helpful to have the to actually have the virus, and then your immunity lasts longer. And some, the vaccine is um, more beneficial. So oh, interesting. In the, in the case of COVID, I mean, you know, obviously the um, groups that have been followed uh, for periods of time, we have seen uh, a drop in their um, IgG, their immune levels, uh, but we have only heard of very few cases of reinfection. Um, the question behind that really is, first of all, there's not a lot of time to get reinfected um, because yeah. we think at least 90 days you should have some immune response. And second, um, it's hard to uh, like prove reinfection because you have to... You'd have to be testing like the whole time, right? You have to be, yeah, and you have to get genetic sequencing, do genetic sequencing and viral culture. Oh. And a lot of these labs oh. really aren't able to do that. Um, so the cases that have been described are sort of rare instances that they were able to um, capture the virus really prove the first it. time and the second time and, yeah. and, and prove genetic sequencing. Otherwise, it's sort of anecdotal. So with that kind of in mind, okay, so do do people that, let's say you've had kind of two questions. Like if you had COVID back in March, you should probably get the vaccine. Whereas it's like, okay, if you just had COVID in October, you know, maybe don't be jumping in the line if there's people that haven't had it yet that need it. Yeah. So that's a question um, we're trying to answer. For example, in the nursing homes, we've been going out and doing, um, uh, testing of antibodies in the nursing homes. And a lot of the residents that have been infected about five to six months prior are still having um, an immune response. Hmm. So we have asked, especially in cases where um, the vaccine is really limited, whether you would prioritize people that um, have never been infected. Already, yeah. um, the CDC really isn't like firmly weighing in on this because, again, we we don't know. Um, and it's also really hard. Uh, it's going to be so hard to roll this vaccine out in the first place <laughs> um, that yeah. I think they're just trying to say, especially in the really high-risk groups like the nursing homes, they just say, let's just do it, vaccinate everybody because it's the safer move. Yeah. Gosh, wow. It's or do you have a, a date set? Are you getting your vaccine this week or? I, yeah. So Hopkins, uh, has a lottery. So mm. I'm in the lottery and I just have to wait until my number is called. Mm. And that's kind of where it goes. Yeah. I think wow. we only got like, um, this, this week we only got 975 doses. And I think there's like something like 10,000 people in the tier 1A that are working on COVID units in the Hopkins system. Oh, wow. Gosh, I was going (laughs) to say, yeah, that's just not that many. I get my number on that. Yeah, it's not a lot. But um, I think Moderna hopefully will be uh, approved in the next week or so. And that will provide um, a lot more opportunities as well. Did you watch any of the FDA of the, the panel hearing? I didn't. I've been on service, so it's been crazy. crazy oh, I'm sorry. Have you been actually bit. working and taking care of people? You didn't watch that on YouTube but all day? I news about it. No, I'm glad that you did, though, so you can give me updates on it. I was like, this is definitely the most, like, loser nerd thing I have ever done. But it was so 
fascinating. And I, I think, I mean, I just had never, obviously, like, so I didn't know that the, the stuff, the stuff was public. I think, cause that's part of like some of this rhetoric is like, oh, it's all done in secret and it's private. And I was like, this is fascinating. Like, look at all of these nerds in here, first of all. And I mean, just to hear all the questions and all of the data and everything. I mean, I, like, I loved it. I felt like I was watching like a good thriller movie, which I'm sorry that <laughs> like where I was, but it was so interesting. And it, it just to hear too, I love like the first 15 minutes of the panel was basically spent explaining like, there's so much misinformation about conflict of interest and who's making money on this and, you know, big pharma and we're all getting, you know, paid and the hospitals get paid more money. And why is that a problem? And blah, blah. Anyway, so it, it was just super interesting to hear all of that, like really spelled out in federal government terms of like, Hey, every person that is in this room has had like an extensive conflict of interest, like meeting with an attorney and there's only one, you know, they actually discussed the one conflict of interest. And I, I don't know. I thought it was just super. Interesting no, it's so true. It's so funny. I feel like I had, you know, I was very much on the science side um, prior to this pandemic. And then, you know, with everything that was going on in the nursing homes, like I was one of the only people that was really, you know, doing infection prevention in nursing homes. And so I got very involved in the policy side. I was on that White House commission. um, And so, understanding and like having calls with the Department of Health now having an understanding of like how public health and politics have intersected has been pretty mind-blowing for me a a little bit scary (laughs) like just how things are getting decided so um yeah it's it's definitely more complex than um I was initially aware of. Um, and, and on both sides though, right? Like, I mean, to say that, like, I, th- I think what's interesting is that there's political influence and, you know, corruption and all of this, you know, barriers and on both sides, whether you're, you know, pro government involvement or pro science involvement, which, whichever one, whichever side you're on, um, there's more to it than I, than I think any of us realize, want to know. Um, really? Exactly. Exactly. Um, terrifying. And it's, it's tough. It's been, it's been really tough. And I think we are going to learn some important lessons from this and hopefully yeah. um, prevent this from ever happening again. So, well, man, you know, I know you have to get disease was not cool before this. So. <laughs> and <laughs> now look at cool you. Again. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, I know you have to get back in literally into the hospital and you're on service this month. And I just I'm, thank you so much for your time. And um, I'm, I hope people will will listen and maybe we can do a follow up in a couple of months if you ever have another free moment. Uh, this is just super fascinating and, and amazing. And I just thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing this. I know um, you have been so helpful to a lot of people. So um, I love well, your podcast. We're trying. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, guys, as always, if you like the show and the guests, please um, rate it, review it, subscribe, tell your friends. That's how other people find the podcast and how I'm able to get amazing guests like Dr. Katz. And hopefully we'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye.